And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. We're going to be talking football today and talking about one of the most extraordinary achievements in the history of the NFL. The one and only time that an NFL team has gone an entire season from uh, the very beginning all the way to the league championship game without a loss or a tie. That has only happened once. And it is something that I remember. I was 12 years old at the time when the Miami Dolphins went 17-0. and And as a matter of fact, that is the title of the wonderful new book that has been written about that extraordinary season. Marshall John Fisher's book is called 17 and 0, Miami 1972 and the NFL's Only Perfect Season. It's a book in which he examines uh, not only all that was part of that amazing success story, the talented ball players and all of the ways in which they needed to come together and meld as a unit under the leadership of Coach Don Shula uh, to go on to do what they did. But beyond even that compelling story is also the compelling backdrop against which this perfect season is played. A turbulent time in our country's history and particularly in the city of Miami where so much of this drama unfolded. Marshall John Fisher may be familiar to you for uh, a previous book called A Terrible Splendor, Three Extraordinary Men, A World Poised for War, and the Greatest Tennis Match Ever Played. This is a book that I sought out uh, a bit after it was published. If I had known at the time, I would have done everything I could have to interview the author because this is a great book about an amazing moment in tennis history when two of the greatest players uh, played a dramatic match on the eve of the Second World War. Uh, So I urge you to seek that out, but also to seek out this wonderful new book published by Abrams Press, again titled 17 and 0, Miami, 1972, and the NFL's only perfect season. Marshall John Fisher, we welcome you to the morning show. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here. I'm really, really happy to be talking with you. I should mention that your work has also appeared uh, in many magazines, including uh, The Atlantic. And uh, you have won some distinguished awards for your work, and I think this book is just great. As I mentioned, I was uh, 12 years old at the time of this uh, perfect season unfolding for the Miami Dolphins, and I had just become enamored with the NFL. I was a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I uh-huh. became fond of them. I just I liked the emblem on their helmets. So for no better right. reason than that, they sort of became my team. And uh, it was a propitious timing because that's when they began their ascent. But So that was just in time for me to really pay attention to this amazing season. You were even younger, I think. And, yeah, uh, I was, I, yeah, I was nine years old in 72. Um, and it's funny you mentioned that because in my earlier years, or not long before that, maybe a couple years before that, I liked the Rams for, because of their helmet. <laughs> so <laughs> when, my, when my dad and my brother were just getting into the Dolphins, and we, we had uh, moved to Miami when I was three, which is right when the Dolphins' first season began, 1966, that my brother and dad were getting into them, and I insisted on being a Rams fan for about one year, I think. <laughs> uh, but um, in 71 is when I came over to the Dolphins as a big fan, and, and, and then, of course, 72. Um, but, what, yeah. One of the things that um, I have 
either heard you say in another interview or maybe at some point you say it in the book is that I think you may have gone about writing this book, which, by the way, I don't think I've actually said it out loud if people haven't done the math, but we are in the 50th anniversary season of this particular season of the Dolphins. So, But that you did so with at least a little bit of trepidation, that is, wondering if that team was as amazing as you remembered it, I mean, as you viewed it through a nine-year-old's eyes. Uh, am I remembering that correctly? And, yeah, and tell us a correct. little more about that experience of looking back at events so long ago and looking through them now through the eyes of a seasoned sports journalist. Right. Well, um, that's exactly right. That um, you know, I always thought of this team as something very, very special, and I think they had a huge impact on everyone living there at the time, but especially kids. You know, it just—it was so amazing to have this thing, this perfect team as our, as our team that year. And um, years later, I wondered were they, you know, were they really that? Because I, I remember them as a, not just a great football team, but as a unusually um, unusual group of men who uh, they seemed particularly remarkable to me. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe that's just nostalgia, you know. And uh, I mean, I had nostalgia for this team even 10 years after it. I was in college in the 80s, and I was in the creative writing program. And I, I remember I wrote a, one of the best stories I wrote in that program in college was called, and actually titled 17-0. and 0. And I wrote a short story about a, a, a high school senior, which would be older than me, but a kid living in Miami during the perfect season. So even then, it, it was only about 10 years later, and it had it was imbued with this nostalgia for this old, you know, this old time, this perfect season. So now, as the 50th anniversary approached, I really wondered, uh, you know, if it was going to live up to my memories, and it really did. I mean, as I as I researched these guys and this team, um, it, they really were a remarkable group of people. Uh, they, they were all sorts of different types. There were there were the crew cut conservative types and the there were the liberals, you know, campaigning for McGovern, and then you had the the party guys with the long sideburns and out drinking all night and just a lot of different types but they under Don Shula they really came together he imbued each of them with this mania that he had for getting back to the Super Bowl and winning it and they 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 really came together as a team and they were a, a, a very intelligent group is the other thing and I, I kind of remembered that and it was true they uh you know these guys became doctors and lawyers and successful businessmen and they really were a smart team. A lot of them were not as big as fast as you might have wanted for the NFL, but they were smart and, and great athletes as well. Before we uh, dig into some specifics explored in your book, I, I want to have you just talk a little bit about uh, the experience of doing your research and uh, what or who was most valuable to you uh, in telling this story so thoroughly. And, of course, uh, it would also be great for us to hear about uh, some of the surviving dolphins uh, that you were able to actually speak with and uh, whom you acknowledge uh, very enthusiastically uh, at the end of the book. Yeah, it was a great experience for me researching this book. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I, I was able to reach a, a number of them, uh, a number of the players. Uh, a number of them have passed away, of course, and some are, are experiencing difficulties with um, with uh, Head trauma, brain injuries. You know, from, that's been a big story about the NFL, and the Dolphins were no no uh, exception. A number of them have died of CTE and uh, and other brain injury related illnesses. 
and some are suffering. But I was able to reach, uh, I think I interviewed 11 players. Um, and, you know, I was trying to do in this book kind of what I did in A Terrible Splendor, which you were nice enough to mention, uh, which is to bring a lot of different stories together of different people. And, of course, it made perfect sense in this one because of all the different players. You know, there are a lot of players on a, on a team and coaches and other people. So I, I tell, you know, a little bit about the stories of each of these players and, um, and a lot of them were very interesting. Even some you might not remember. One who was very valuable to me was Eddie Jenkins, who hardly played at all. He was, you know, he was a, a sub. I mean, he was on the taxi squad much of the season. But an interesting person. Uh, he became a lawyer later, city attorney for Boston, and um, and he was very interesting and helpful to me because well, he had an interesting story. First of all, that I put in the book uh, of how he came down for training camp and he stopped on the way in Miami Beach because. The convention, the Democratic National Convention was going on. Both conventions were held on Miami Beach that year. And he had this amazing experience of seeing cars overturn and fires being lit, all these protesters, people protesting against the war, and, uh, you know, on his way to his first training camp. So, um, you know, there were a lot of interesting stories of individuals uh, during during that season, and that was, that's one of them. Hmm. Um, but the great, you know, it was a great thrill to talk to people who were heroes of mine when I was a kid. You know, Paul Warfield, Mercury Morris. Howard Twilley, uh, uh, you know, and there was everyone I talked to. They were so uh, amenable to talking and so magnanimous. I mean, Paul Warfield, to me, is you know, I mean, he's perhaps the greatest wide receiver ever. Such a he, even to his teammates at the time, he was sort of on a different level. They sort of treated him with such respect and kid gloves. And he, but he's just the most the friendliest guy. He gave me hours, a couple hours on the phone, and that was true of all of them. They were all happy to talk, and it was a thrill to talk to them. Hmm. I know that uh, even as a nine-year-old, you were present for some of the games of this perfect yeah. season. Um, I'm just curious, uh, did you take the time 50 years later to watch every game from that perfect season? And and I guess maybe parenthetically, I should also ask, I'm just assuming that all of those games are preserved in their entirety, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, I watched a lot of it, uh, a lot of the seasons. I couldn't get everything. Um, NFL films, they, I'm sure they do have, but they, I was unable to get you know, the footage from NFL films um, or from the NFL. Um, and I'm sure they do have, I would think they have every game. But, you know, the thing is I was able to get a lot of it. It's remarkable how much you can see uh, just on YouTube. Uh, several complete games, like, including, interestingly, the, the one game I went to with my dad and my brother, was game five against San Diego, and the game where Bob Greasy got hurt was and was out for the rest of the regular season, um, and that the, almost the whole game is on on YouTube. Wow! Uh, the Super Bowl is of course is on there. I watched the Super Bowl over and over, and I saw a lot of the rest of the season. You can I, and I was able to piece together footage from different sites, and uh, so I didn't see everything, but I, I watched a lot of it and. Uh, and I loved it. To me, that was maybe the most fun of all the research I did. Uh, you know, when you have a team you love when you're a kid, it's just to be able to, when you go back and watch all these years later, it's just, to me, that's more fun than watching any game today. Hmm. We're speaking with Marshall John Fisher about his newest book, 17 and O, Miami, 1972, and the NFL's only perfect season. This was uh, a relatively new a ball team uh, for the NFL, that is the Miami Dolphins, and uh, what they achieved in their 1972 season has never been duplicated. They went the entire regular season, the playoffs, and the Super Bowl 
uh, with all victories, no losses, no ties. Uh, I appreciate the fact that your your book does not limit itself to the Dolphins itself and to the football games that they played, but you also are uh, interested in giving us kind of the backdrop. And you've already touched on a couple of the most uh, remarkable uh, things about the city of Miami at this time, including the fact that uh, in something that's pretty much unprecedented in recent history, they hosted both the Democratic and Republican uh, political conventions that, that summer. But even quite beyond that, uh, you tell us that there was something about this setting, about Miami at this point in time, that uh, made it, in your words, a setting made for Hollywood. Uh, explain uh, a little more about that backdrop of Miami in 1972. What was going yeah, on? Yeah, it seemed, um, it really seemed that Miami in some ways was a focal point of so much that was going on in the country. Uh, we've, we've talked about how both conventions were there in the summer. Um, Nixon was in Miami a lot because he had the Winter White House down there on Key Biscayne, and I, I talked quite a bit about Nixon in the book, uh, who, who, you know, was a fascinating character and, and um, a huge football fan. He was the first president who was a really big sports fan. He, he loved the Redskins, who they, whom the Dolphins ended up playing in the Super Bowl, but he was also a big fan of Don Shula and had written to him several times, uh, and he'd even, <laughs> he had even uh, famously suggested a play to Shula for the Super Bowl six against Dallas, which didn't work out too well. But uh, so Nixon was very much involved in this, um, and uh, the water—I mean, the um, Vietnam War was still raging, and you know all the protests at the conventions in Miami. And Watergate was getting started. The, the break-in was that June, and during the football season in the fall, the investigation was just getting going. And even there, there's a Miami angle because the burglars were most of them were from Miami, huh. uh, and. Uh, and uh, Carl Bernstein went down to Miami when he and Woodward were starting to investigate this. He was down in Miami in, in the late summer trying to, you know, get some interviews and get some information about these guys who broke into the Watergate Hotel. So it is interesting that, you know, and, and it's one of the things I, from the very beginning, I wanted to do in this book is talk about how Miami was such a big part of what was going on uh, that year. And I really love how at one point you say that this team, that is the Miami Dolphins, reflected the social dichotomy of the times, yet unlike the fractious society seeming to unravel uh, around them, this diverse group found a way to meld seamlessly into a team, the perfect team. And of course, a lot of your book is is, is all about that. Uh, yes, uh, I think a big part of that, uh, the credit for that goes to Don Shula, you know, I mean, he really was a great coach, and he, he really was a great, incredible motivator of men. And um, he came down there, and there was, there was, you know, Miami. In <laughs> Miami was a very different place back then. It was first of all, it was much smaller, which I talk about. You know, it's nothing like the the uh, big city it is today. It was a smaller community, and it was the South. You know, it was, uh, and there was a lot of there's still a lot of segregation even in at the end of the '60s. Um, black players who came down there were not very comfortable a lot of the time, and they could only buy homes in certain areas. They weren't welcome everywhere. And on the team, you know, uh, they they were separated. I mean, in the locker room, the black guys were on one half and the white guys on the other half, and they they roomed only with you know, the same same race. And uh, Don Shula came down there, and he immediately integrated the team. 
uh, he he assigned roommates, and they were almost all mixed race. And he insisted the locker room be all mixed. He moved all the lockers around. And then, you know, it's not that he was such a great progressive, uh, you know, political guy. He was not interested in that, really. I mean, he was, I, but he, he cared about winning. And Mercury Morris pointed this out to me. He said, you know, it wasn't that Shula was, <laughs> in fact, he wasn't, he, he was sort of middle of the road politically, but uh, I think he was for integration, of course. But he really cared about winning, and he knew that the, they had to function as a team. And they couldn't be separated like that. Uh, so he, he he was amazing, really, at doing that, and he he transmitted this desire that he had, this incredible mania for winning to each of his players. Right, and and in some ways, this this forced integration of the Dolphins was you know, kind of a a litmus test for the way in which uh, this kind of highly varied group of of, of men would be able to come together, I mean, across not only racial divides, but political divides and, and personality divides and so on, and, and, and it really happened, although it's not particularly yeah. easy. But, and you also no, tell you know, The inter- interesting thing, though, that just occurred to me is that, of course, you know, you're uh, in Kenosha and uh, in Wisconsin, and um, Schuller was not the first to do this. You know, Vince Lombardi with the Packers uh, had also worked hard to integrate his team uh, also for similar reasons you know this mania for winning and for making a team and Marv Fleming who had played for the Packers came down to Miami in 1970 same year as Shula and he walked into the locker room and he couldn't believe it uh, uh, how segregated the locker room was coming from the Packers and so he he made a big show of, he also was part of that because he he kind of ridiculed them for that, and you know he was a part of integrating that team too. Interesting, yes. And you 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 mentioned in telling this story that that the Miami Dolphins were not the exception; they were more the norm. That is that kind of racial segregation uh, of of the black and white players um, eating separately, rooming separately, uh, hanging out separately. That was the way it played out. Uh, on nearly every team, and a team had to make a really concerted effort to break out of that old habit. And you're right. The Packers, thanks to Vince Lombardi, uh, were one of the very first to do that in a meaningful way, and uh, and it happened in the Dolphins uh, as well. Right. You tell us about uh, Coach John Shula that at this point in time, uh, I don't remember if it's even when he came to Miami or just ahead of that, but you would call him at one point the league's most heralded coach. I mean, he had already enjoyed some great success uh, with the Baltimore Colts, and yet there was something that uh, left him sort of at the second tier in some respects, and that was the fact that before this 1972 season, uh, he had, in a sense, lost two Super Bowls. So he had this reputation of not being able to win the big game. Tell us more about that and how crucial you think that was or how important that was to Don Shula himself, that reputation, (laughs) deserved or not. No way to overstate how important that was to him. He he had become the youngest head coach in the NFL when he became the coach of Baltimore in the mid-'60s, and uh, he was a, a great coach. You know, he was considered the best coach even though he never quite went all the way. He came very close. He lost some uh, big playoff games in Baltimore, but then he finally took them to the NFL championship in 1968. But the thing was, that was the third year that the NFL champion had to play the AFL champion in what was they were calling the Super Bowl. I mean, it was Super Bowl three, 
they were still separate leagues, but and uh, his team kind of relaxed. They didn't take it very seriously because the NFL was supposed to be so much stronger than the AFL. But they lost in humiliating fashion to Joe Namath and the Jets in Super Bowl three, and that was a that was a turning point for Shula. He was ridiculed by his own owner, and he his stock really fell in Baltimore. And the next year they had a not a great season, and so he was all ears when Miami called and you know, Joe Robbie wanted to hire him down in Miami, and so. He was kind of happy to leave Baltimore and come down to Miami. He immediately took them. And as you say, he was already at that point the most heralded coach in the league. He really was. And the first year in Miami, he took this expansion team to the playoffs. Second year to the Super Bowl. But then they had had another humiliating loss uh, in Super Bowl six to Dallas. So now he's this guy who's been the greatest coach and the youngest coach, but he uh, has lost both Super Bowls he's been in. And people were saying he couldn't win the big one. Um, and so he just he was became obsessed with getting back to the Super Bowl in 1972 and winning it. And uh, you know, Larry Zonka remembered him even saying, "We're going to go out there and we're going to win every game." And uh, and he was able, as I've said before, he was able to transmit this to each and every player, and they they went along with him for the ride. It's important for us to to uh, remind our listeners that the Dolphins were a very new team. I think you just called them an expansion team. So yeah. their first season was it 1966? Yes. So it's not like we're they were drawing upon any kind of long history or long legacy. And it's also an interesting part of the Don Shula story to talk briefly about the coach whom he followed, one George Wilson, a pretty much forgotten name now. But he was someone, you tell us, who was – absolutely loved by his players and for very good reason and uh and when he was summarily dumped after the dolphins went 3-10 and 1 in their i think fourth season uh he is fired and so don shula is f- following in the footsteps of a player who was really beloved and who many of those players felt did not deserve uh to be fired and that is not uh, an enviable, enviable position for, for any new coach to find themselves in. No, and even worse, uh, George Wilson had been Shula's boss. Uh, in fact, he had been his boss in Detroit, where Shula got his first coaching job and when George uh, Wilson was the head coach of Detroit in the 50s. And then he was, and George Wilson really helped him get that head coaching job at, at Baltimore. So, you know. And then he had to come in and replace him when he was fired, and Wilson was not happy about it. But Joe Robbie assured Shula that Wilson was going to be fired in any case. Hmm. And so Shula took the job. But George Wilson was not a bad coach. You know, he had won the NFL championship well, when in Detroit when Shula was his assistant. And, uh, and he was, you know, a good coach, but he was near the end of his career, and he, he, he was kind of taking it easy in Miami. And he, he, the players loved him because he treated them – like a, you know, one of his like his buddies, you know, and he'd party with them, and the practices were not too tough. It was too hot. They'd go swimming in the pool at the at the college where they were practicing, and you know, but he he the players loved him, but he didn't necessarily uh, work them hard enough, uh, at least at that point in his career, to be winners. Hmm. One of the things you tell us that's very interesting is about how the Dolphins contacted Don Shula. And although Joe Robbie wanted him, uh, Joe Robbie could not pick up the phone and offer this right. opportunity to Don Shula. Explain that situation and how that was ultimately handled. 
Yeah, well, you're not allowed, even now, you know, it's the same today. I mean, you're, you're not allowed to just contact a player or coach of another team and try to lure them away when they're under contract. So, but um, the main uh, football writer for the Miami Herald at that time was Bill Broucher, who had gone to college with Don Shula at John Carroll University up in, in Ohio. And he was talking with Robbie and Robbie, and he suggested Shula to Robbie. Joe Robbie wanted a coaching change. He's trying to get Bear Bryant from Alabama, but, but uh, he couldn't quite land him. And uh, Broucher said, why don't you try Shula? I don't think he's too happy up there right now. And uh, as you say, Robbie couldn't call him, but Broucher could call him as a friend, you know. <laughs> and he called him up and uh, felt him out, and, uh, you know, Shula was kind of interested. So then, but even Shula himself said, I can't talk to Robbie until I get permission from. So he tried to get permission from Carol Rosenblum, the owner, who was away in Asia, or I think it was in Japan. And uh, he he was couldn't be contacted, so he asked his son, who was the, I guess the vice president of the team, and his son gave him permission. So Shula, Shula was a guy who always played by the rules, you know. I mean, he he would not even bend a rule. So he got permission. He felt that was okay, and he, he met with Robbie a few times, and they they came to an agreement. But uh, the thing is, uh, Carol Rosenblum, when he got back, was furious about it, even though he did not like Shula and had been kind of wanting to fire him anyway. But he didn't like that he had been hired out while, while he was away. So he complained, and in fact, the Dolphins got penalized for tampering. Uh, uh, and in the end, they had to give up a draft choice, I think, wow. for that. But <laughs> so mm. that's how that all worked out. Yeah. One of my favorite moments in the book is when you describe the the one-day get-acquainted uh, event in in April of that year. So this is when... Uh, Don Shula met nearly all of the veterans who are already part of the uh, Miami Dolphins. And <laughs> it was not, in a sense, the, the friendliest of encounters, at least with, uh, with certain players that Don Shula was meeting for the first time, including the great uh, Larry Little and uh, the amazing running back uh, Larry Zonka. Explain to my list, our listeners uh, what I'm talking about here. Yeah, well, this is in April of 1970, as you say. He'd just been hired, and he comes down for the mini camp uh, to meet players. And <laughs> they uh, got the idea right away that things were going to be a little different than they were under George Wilson because he seemed surely <laughs> seemed obsessed with everyone's weight. He, uh, he, he, Larry Little came up to him and said, "Hi, coach. I'm your guard, Larry Little." And you know, and Larry Little had been. You know, we know, if you follow football, you might know now that he, he was the greatest offensive lineman of the 1970s. That's what he was voted at the later. But at that time, he was nothing much. He'd done he'd come played for San Diego, hadn't done very well, and then came to Miami and was you know he was pretty good, but he wasn't nothing outrageous. But Shula met him and goes immediately says, "What what do you, what's your weight?" And, and Larry, I forget the numbers, but whatever he said, Shula said, "You." losing 20 pounds before training camp. Report, he, he would tell them each what weight to report at. Same thing with Zonka. He t- Zonka told him he was 255, I think, and he goes, report at 235. And you know, Zonka said, I can't do that. That's my high school weight. How am I going to do that? And he goes, you'll be better. You'll be faster. And he did that with a lot of players. And uh, you know what? It really helped. I mean, that Larry Little credits that with, with really changing the nature of his game because he was a pulling guard. He had to run. He really had to move to get outside and do what he did. Hmm. And that, that helped turn him into a great player. But it's funny, you know, and Shula said how when he was in Baltimore, he tried the same thing with Bubba Smith, 
the great defensive lineman, and Smith was not did not did not like that and never never really bought into that. And uh, but the players in Miami did what he told them, and it worked. Right, but it was not necessarily pleasant in the moment. Yeah. You you write players felt like the team had been taken over by Weight Watchers rather than a new coach. And obsessed with the way, yeah. Right, and uh, you tell us about the way in which he ran training camp, and uh, at one point one of the players said there there was really no need for bed checks because they would get to bed absolutely uh, exhausted, but they were starting to really be shaped into uh, uh, a a very, very fine ball team. Uh, You tell us that the the reputation of the Dolphins – even as they approach this uh, amazing uh, undefeated season as kind of a ragtag group in which uh, a lot of the roster consisted of kind of cast-offs from other teams and, and so on. Uh, is, is that reputation deserved? I mean, in fact, is that what their roster largely consisted of? I mean, uh, yeah. I mean more, more so than would often be the case? I think so. I mean, it's remarkable when you look at the players. I mean, I just mentioned Larry Little, who uh, he grew up in Miami, but was drafted by San Diego, and he was barely even starting at San Diego. He was not considered to be much of a player. Um, so many of them, uh, Bob Kuchenberg, the great left guard, uh, he had been, uh, you know, he, he didn't make an NFL team, and he was playing semi-pro ball in Chicago for the Chicago Owls. <laughs> and, uh you know, and then he got a tryout in Miami and came down there. Um, the offensive line called themselves the Expendables because they had all, most of them, everyone except Doug Cruzan, who was a, a number one choice, they, the rest had been let go by other teams and just not considered to have much promise. And the, and the defense was called the no-name defense for good reason because other than Nick Bonacani, who had, he had been an all-pro in the AFL for the Patriots, uh, other than them, the, they were not well known at all, even though they were great. They ended up being great players, but um, they they were people. You know, Doug Swift, the linebacker, came from Amherst College, a little Division three school. Manny Fernandez, who was such a great nose tackle, was not drafted out of Utah, and he just came down and tried out. It's really true of a number of the players, and as I said before, a lot of them on paper were not that big or that fast, and so they didn't get a lot of look from other players, other coaches. But they were they had heart and they had. They had talent, and they had smarts, and Shula was able to see that in them. And also his, his coaches, Monty Clark and Schnellenberger and Arnsparger, uh, were also really remarkable, and they were able to see in players what other coaches had not seen. Hmm. You tell us that the training camp for Don Shula's first two seasons uh, were marked by kind of outside, well, and sometimes inside trouble, uh, some kind of strike, I think, the first time out, and uh, and an important holdout uh, for the second training camp. So, uh, in both of those instances, we're we're talking about uh, training camp beginning with at least uh, some complications in the air. Yes, um, the first season there was a strike. Uh, the NFL players were trying to get better. Uh, better pay and better contracts and they're, they're, they had a strike so the veterans didn't report for quite a while and that that's why that allowed some players to get in and make it someone like Doug, Doug Swift who I just mentioned really probably got in there because there were no veterans in camp and so there was room for more more people who hadn't played to come in and get tryouts and to show what they had you know but 
But the, the, <laughs> the veterans all reported quite late, I think two weeks before the first exhibition game. So that's what led to this, uh, this boot camp, uh, this training camp where Shula instituted four-a-day practices, which, you know, is very unusual. <laughs> the players, they'll talk about that to this day, how – how brutal it was just uh you know and you said they, they they couldn't wait to get to bed and and then someone else told me uh you know couldn't wait to get to bed but on the other hand you didn't want to go to bed because you knew you next thing you know you're getting up and starting again it was just a, a rough rough uh training camp because of that delay the second season uh, i think you're referring to kick and zonka who held out uh the two you know the starting backfield butch and sundance as they were called and they decided they had done the outrageous move of getting an agent to to negotiate their contracts for them, which most players did not have at that time. And uh, the agent had them sit out, and so they they were getting fined every day. They weren't there. And uh, Shula later said that was what made it difficult for him to institute the three-back offense with Mercury Morris, which he said he had wanted to do. I'm not sure why it was, that made it that hard, but that was his reason. But in any case, it certainly – was big news back then, and finally Kick and Zonker finally signed for, for a big raise, and Kick said to the reporter who asked him, uh, ah, we would have played for nothing, but, you know, <laughs> we just wanted to get some more money. Right, and and you're, of course, referring to uh, Larry Zonka and Jim Kick, uh, who were already very, very well known, and then this complication comes along uh, in the form of a brilliantly talented running back named Mercury Morris, and as you're just touching on, Coach Shula had to figure out a way to uh, meld him into that backfield and make use of his spectacular talents as well. And that's just one of uh, a number of of kind of dicey situations. Another that you tell us about is is how uh, the man who ultimately became the center for the Miami Dolphins, Jim Langer, uh, was was somebody who was not particularly prominent or uh, or or successful for his first couple of years I think you tell us he barely remained on the team and then yeah. somehow was able to supplant the incumbent and went on to become one of the greatest centers of the NFL's ever seen I mean it's an incredible story yeah you know it's another one of these guys who who was just not considered to have much promise he, he uh, had been drafted by Cleveland I think and they they let him go or Dolphins signed him into the taxi squad, and yeah, even in, in, in even in training camp in '72, he'd already been there a couple of years, but um, he was just a backup all through the exhibition season. No one thought he'd be starting because they had Bob DeMarco, who was a good center. He had been the center last few years in, in the Super Bowl the year before, and uh, but uh, Monty Clark, this brilliant offensive line coach they had, who was a, quite a character himself. He was a poet and a musician uh interested in all kinds of things and he he liked langer he liked what he was seeing from jim langer and even though shula and everyone was telling the press all through the preseason that no no demarco's our man you know our center but uh monty clark kept saying to shula you got to keep looking at langer he's he's amazing and uh yeah by the end of the preseason they had they told shula had to tell demarco that he had lost his job to this kid jim langer and uh, DeMarco was furious and demanded to be traded, and he was traded to Cleveland. Uh, and as you say, Langer, Jim Langer, became one of the very greatest centers ever. I think he was also named 
uh, on the best team of the 70s, on you know, the best center of the 1970s. And from what you describe, and we glean from the quotes of him, that he was seems like a really sweet Midwestern kid who, uh, I mean, his admiration for, for Bob DeMarco was... You know, yeah. surpassed everyone. I mean, and he was he was amazed and and uh, incredibly gratified to be given this opportunity, and he made the most of it. I appreciate that you remind us that this is an era in football when, uh, in your words, uh, NFL players uh, were not yet millionaires nor treated as millionaires. They were more like indentured servants, and uh, so it's probably important for us in twenty twenty two to be reminded of what life was like for, for the NFL and NFL players 50 years ago. At any rate, uh, Don Shula is able to achieve uh, a 10-4 season, his uh, first season with the Dolphins, 10-3-1 the second, and they make it to the Super Bowl, but they get their tails whipped by the Dallas Cowboys. Six months later, when the Dolphins reconvene, uh, <laughs> describe what Don Shula did in that first meeting with his players at the very outset. Yeah. Well, even to go back further, uh, right after the game, um, he, he assembled his team and he said, think about how you feel right now and make sure you don't never feel this way again. And Vern Den Herter, the, the defensive lineman, told me that on the, even on the plane home from, from the Super Bowl, he was walking up and down the aisle talking to each player and saying the same thing. Make sure next year we're never going to feel this way. Think about what you're going to do to change this and, 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 and take us that one extra step. And then, uh, yeah, first day of training camp, they, they get there, and he's, he's immediately playing them the films from the Super Bowl loss and going over it, and the players are looking at each other, oh, man, what are we in for? Because Shula was just so driven at this point. And uh, as I said, I said before, Zonka remembers. He's the only one who remembers this, but he, he remembers Shula saying, we're going to go out there each week, and we're going to win every single game. And, you know, he turned to kick, Jim kick next to him, and they just looked at each other, and one of them said, oh, boy, this is going to be a beauty. <laughs> <laughs> right. And <laughs> I like how you— the you, boot camp with him. Right. And you quote Mercury Morris saying something to the effect that, you know, he's here, here he is reaming them out as yeah. though the game just happened 24 hours earlier. I mean, it's six yeah. months yeah. ago, but, but, but Don Shula intends to use the pain and anger and frustration of that humiliating loss— to fuel his team to achieve something that had never been achieved before and which has never been achieved since. Well, ultimately, of course, the balance of your book takes us game by game through this uh, incredible season. Uh, we should say that it is not a season of, of one blowout after another. There are uh, a couple of different games that are very, very close, at least one game uh, that's won by the Dolphins by a single point. <laughs> so uh, it is it is by no means an easy season, nor a charmed season, especially uh, because of what happens in game, game five when quarterback Bob Greasy goes down with an injury that takes him out for the remainder of the season. And the thought that the Dolphins could go on winning without Bob Greasy is just astounding. Tell our listeners about uh, the veteran quarterback who stepped in so ably into his shoes. Yes, uh, and as I said, that was the one game that my family went to, and we watched Greasy go down with the broken ankle and get carted off on a stretcher, and there was this feeling that, oh, no, there goes the season, because, you know, when you lose your all-pro quarterback, not many teams can come back from that. 
but Shula had been smart enough to bring down Earl Morrill as a backup for that year. And Morrill had been his backup quarterback for him in, uh, in Baltimore for several years. And, in fact, in 1968, Johnny Unitas was out for the whole season, and Morrill played almost the entire season and took the Colts to a 15-1 and season and the NFL championship, although they then lost, as I said, to the Jets in the Super Bowl. So Morrill had done it before, but in 1972, he was 38 years old, by far the oldest player on the team. He was older than some of his coaches, almost <laughs> as old as Shula. And uh, he was just this laid-back guy. He, had, he was one of these conservative crew-cut guys. You know, he looked like it was 1958 all the time. But uh, he, he certainly didn't reflect the, the, the times of the early 70s in Miami. But he, he just got along with everyone, and he was very laid-back, didn't feel any pressure. And when, when he had to come in in that Game 5, and he just got out to the huddle, and the players were all, you know, just kind of downcast. But what had happened, he just said, all right, guys, let's just keep it going. And he, he took them down. He threw a couple touchdown passes, won the game. And, you know, he he won 11 games for them. And, in fact, he was the number one passer in the league that year. And he was the all-pro quarterback, even though, in the end, he didn't get to play in the Super Bowl. Hmm. And again, your your book takes us game by game, and it's so interesting. Even though you're, the title of your book is seventeen and O, and we obviously know this book was written because they went seventeen and O. It's amazing how much suspense you're able to <laughs> fold into the mix as you recount uh, each and every one of these games. Uh, some of which are blowouts, but most of which are hard fought and close. Uh, as are the playoff uh, games, which occur then. Um, with a, a, a victory over uh, the Cleveland Browns and then my own beloved Pittsburgh Steelers, a really close game that I remember yeah. watching. Uh, the Dolphins beat the Steelers at home in Three River Stadium, setting up the Super Bowl with the Washington Redskins. I could hardly believe my eyes when I read that the uh, that the, the Dolphins, despite having a perfect season up to that point, were only one-point favorites over the Redskins. How can that possibly be true? Yeah, there's several surprising things when you look back. First of all, the Steelers game in the AFC Championship, Dolphins were uh, uh, 15-0 going in, right? And uh, they had to travel up to Pittsburgh <laughs> and play away because back then the home field didn't go to the better record. The divisions took turns ah. who would get the home field advantage. So that's why that was played in Three Rivers Stadium. Interesting. They, they had to go up there and play with a very hostile crowd, famously hostile crowd up there. and and beat the Steelers up there. And then they go to the Super Bowl, and yeah, Jimmy the Greek calls, picks the Redskins by a point, even though Miami's 16-0. and um, You know, and not, not every, there were some experts who picked the Dolphins, but, but several uh, picked the Redskins because they were a more experienced team and they thought they had a tougher schedule. Um, so they always felt like they were up against them, they were the underdogs, and I think that gave them a little extra fire. Uh, but they really handled the Redskins, beat them pretty badly, even though the final score doesn't show it, uh, 14-7, because of the, the famous goof by Gary Apremian. But uh, uh, if, if he had made that easy field goal near the end, it would have been 17-0 for a 17-0 season. Right. It's interesting what a big difference there is between 17-0 as a score versus 14-7. Yeah. Uh, yeah. for, for our listeners who don't recall, uh, Gary Upremny, it was it that he was it that the snap was fumbled or no 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 he uh, he kicked it very low and it was blocked actually, okay. he actually kicked it into the back of the lineman I believe and then it came back to him and instead of falling on it uh, he tried to throw right a pass it went straight up in the air 
Uh, when it came back down, he, he made it even worse by batting it up like a volleyball for some reason, back up into the air, and finally Mike Bass of the Redskins grabbed it and went the other way for a touchdown. Right. That I remember. I just didn't remember exactly the circumstances. Yeah. The other thing yeah. I remember is uh, a night or two later, uh, Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, uh, my recollection is he opened his – opening monologue by saying, you know, first of all, I have a quick announcement. The Gary Upremian passing clinic has been indefinitely right. postponed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's the first time right. I ever understood, you know, kind of an adult level joke uh, as, yeah. a, as a youngster. But uh, aside from that uh, embarrassing little moment, it is a entirely convincing victory by the Miami Dolphins over the Redskins. And this perfect season is ultimately uh, achieved. Uh, they don't achieve perfection the following season, but in some respects, that next Miami Dolphins team is is equal to the one that achieved this perfect season, at least in terms of sheer ability, it sounds like. Yeah, or even better. You know, the funny thing about is that you can't even say that the 72 Dolphins were the greatest team ever because they weren't even the greatest Miami team ever. Most, <laughs> most players and observers felt that, uh, the 73 team was a better team. And uh, as you say, the games in that season were mostly blowouts. They did lose a very close one early on to Oakland, out in Oakland, 12-7. to And then they lost the last game of the season in a game that didn't matter when they, they rested a lot of players. Other than that, they really kind of destroyed everyone, and especially in the playoffs, whereas, as you mentioned, in 72, the playoff games were pretty close. Uh, in 73, they were not. They, they just destroyed uh, Cincinnati and then Oakland. They got revenge on Oakland. And then in the Super Bowl, they really killed Minnesota pretty badly. And they, they hardly even had to throw the ball. As great a passing game as they had with Paul Warfield and Bob Greasy was a terrific quarterback, they hardly threw it all that year. I mean, <laughs> I think he threw six passes in the AFC Championship and six more in the Super Bowl. So they were just so dominant on the ground. Amazing. Uh, in our last minute or so, what is what has it meant for you as a longtime Dolphins fan, to be able to go on this odyssey of, of uh, in a sense, journeying back half a century and reliving this amazing season. Yeah, it's been really gratifying for me. As I said, I've been thinking about it for so long, and I think I mentioned that I wrote <laughs> first wrote about them when I was in college, and uh, all these years, I, you know, I knew at some point I had to write something about this team that I'd grown up with and that had left such an impression on me, and. Finally, with the 50th anniversary, it's hard to believe with that coming up, I finally realized this is the time, and a few years ago, started work on this, and uh, um, it's just been great, and as you know, it was great talking to players and, and, and hearing from from people who also remember that team, and friends and other fans, and um, just glad I was able to finally get it done for the 50th anniversary. It's an incredible book. It really, really is, and I appreciate so much that we learn about this team as a whole and the remarkable players that were uh, on its roster who played such an, 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 an important role in various ways in making all of this happen. The book again, 17 and 0, Miami, 1972, and the NFL's only perfect season. The book published by Abrams Press, and it includes some wonderful photographs as well and the wonderful writing of Marshall John Fisher. Marshall John Fisher, thank you so much. Congrats on a wonderful book, and thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. Greg, thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you.